So I'd like you to take your Bible, and I'd like you to take your Bible, and I'd like you to open it up to Matthew chapter 19. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you that looks just like this Bible. Grab that Bible and open it up to page 800, and on page 800, you will find Matthew chapter 19. After a two-week break for Christmas and for New Year, we're jumping back into our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about marriage, divorce, and singleness. Now, let me say up front that there is a lot to cover on these subjects, and we're not going to be able to cover everything that the Bible has to say about these subjects this morning, but we are going to look at what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 19. Now, we can admit, we can see that these topics, marriage, divorce, and singleness, are relevant to each one of us in one way or another. Some of you, many of you, are married. Some of you are single, and you're wondering, should I get married? Some of you are single and wondering if you should stay single. And there's other of you, others of you who are divorced and are now single, or are divorced and now remarried. So certainly, these topics are relevant to us in one way or another. But they're also topics that can be painful. Some of you are in a marriage that is difficult. Some of you have experienced the pain of divorce. Others are single and long to be married. There's pain that surrounds these subjects. There's also a lot of advice and instruction regarding these subjects. There's books, podcasts, posts. There's people that have opinions. There's Dr. Phil. There's Dr. Laura. There's Dr. Oz. There's Oprah. There's even the Pope. Some of the information and advice is good. And some of it is not so good. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Jesus has to say on these topics. We're going to look to the one who designed, who created marriage and who defines marriage for us. We're going to see what Jesus has to say. Now, all week, my prayer has been, and my prayer is exactly the same this morning that God would give me the grace to speak accurately and kindly on these topics and that he would give each of us the grace to listen to Jesus' words humbly and obediently, recognizing that Jesus has the words of life and so this morning, Jesus wants each one of us to experience the life that only he can give. So Matthew chapter 19, let's look what Jesus has to say to us this morning. 
Let's look at the text, Matthew chapter 19. I'd like us first to see that our passage begins with a subtle description of Jesus' character. Now, I said it is subtle because it is subtle. But it's important for us to see Jesus' character. And I think Matthew intentionally shows us something about Jesus before Jesus begins to talk about marriage, divorce, and singleness. And it's beautiful. So please see this. Notice it. Write it down. It's Jesus' beautiful character, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The things that Jesus had just finished saying were those things that he has already taught us in Matthew chapter 18. He taught us about his love and his care for the little ones in the faith, those who are young and old who believe and trust in Jesus. To each of them and to us, he said that he welcomes us, he welcomes each of us with open arms. He protects and defends. He warns that no one can leave him without him following aggressively after them to bring them back. He says that when one sins and comes back in repentance, that he is there to receive and welcome them home. You see, this is what Jesus does because this is who Jesus is. And then look at verse two. In verse two, we're told that large crowds followed him. We've seen this before. All throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen that the crowds are following Jesus. People were drawn to him. People were drawn to him because of the need that they had and his ability to actually meet their needs. Why? Because Jesus cares about people. And look what, it, look what he did. It says he healed them. Because Jesus cares about people, Jesus healed them. That's what he does because that's who he is. Jesus healed then and Jesus heals today. And then keep this in mind as well. The verse tells us that he left Galilee and he's on the other side of the Jordan. You see, it's important to note here that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the very last time. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and my sin. And on his way to Jerusalem, he's not thinking about himself. He's not caught up all up inside his own head. On his way to Jerusalem to die, he is thinking about other people and he is bringing, drawing people to himself to be healed. His focus is not upon himself. His focus is upon others and we read that he healed them. Do you see this? Do you get it? Do you feel it? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He loves these people so much that he welcomes each of them with open arms. He asks them, he is encouraging them to bring their needs to him so he can resolve, he can heal them. That's what Jesus does because that's who Jesus is. And it is in this context, 
please understand that everything that Jesus says about marriage, divorce, and singleness is in the context of his love for people and is in the context of him being a healer. Jesus healed then and he heals today because he loves you. And so what happens in the rest of the text is that it is broken down into three questions. Jesus is asked three questions and he provides answers. There is a lead question, there is a follow-up question, and then there is an implied question. Three questions, lead question, follow-up question, and then an implied question. So let's first look at the lead question. Verse three, some Pharisees came to him, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now here, it's important to note that the Pharisees are not interested in hearing the truth about divorce. They have come to Jesus to trip him up. It is why they are on the other side of the Jordan River. Pharisees do not go to the other side of the Jordan River. But they go to trip Jesus up. They go to cause him trouble. In fact, he's already talked about marriage and divorce earlier in his Sermon on the Mount. They are just here to mess him or to try to mess him up because no matter what answer he gives, he is going to offend someone. I feel that a bit this morning. I get a little bit of what Jesus was going through. They think no matter what he says, someone is going to be offended. You see, because during the time of Jesus, there is a debate going on about the proper grounds for a divorce. The Pharisees' question refers to that debate. See where it says, for any and every reason? It's a key phrase, because at the time, there were two schools of thought about divorce. The Pharisees themselves are divided into two groups. One group led by a great rabbi named Shammai, and the other group led by a rabbi named Hillel. Shammai's view was a strict view. The grounds for divorce was only because of sexual immorality witnessed by someone that could affirm what had happened. Hillel's view was a more lenient view, that you could divorce for any and every reason. Essentially, if the husband was offended in some way by the actions of the wife, that would be grounds for divorce. If the wife burnt the dinner, if the wife insulted the husband's parents, <laughs> sorry, if the husband found a woman who he thought was prettier than his wife, it was sufficient grounds for divorce in Hillel's view, a lenient view of divorce. So there's a strict view and a lenient view. Any idea which one you think was the most popular? <laughs> You got it, right? Hillel's view was the most popular, and especially among the Pharisees. So interestingly, at the time of Jesus, just like today, divorce was fairly easy to get, fairly easy to get and to justify. Now let's look at Jesus' answer to the question. I love it. 
I love Jesus' answers, and I hope you have seen this throughout the Gospel of Matthew, because he's never fooled and he's never tripped up. Never fooled or tripped up. Look how he points out the... He points the Pharisees right back to Scripture. He points the Pharisees right back to the beginning, to the first chapter of the Bible. He points them specifically to God's original design in marriage. Now think about this. If we were to do this in the cultural wars that we're going through today and the arguments today, it would be a much better thing if in every time we point people just to the truth of Scripture. So look at Jesus' answer, verses 4 and 5. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus goes right back to the book of Genesis and he quotes Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. When they ask Jesus about divorce, Jesus is brilliant. When they ask Jesus about divorce, Jesus answers them with an answer regarding marriage. He took them to God's original design for marriage, recognizing that marriage is from God. It is not a human invention subject to human regulations or whims. We see this in Genesis And here in Matthew chapter 19, we see Jesus affirming these truths. When God made humanity, he made one man. And from that man, he made one woman. He did not make one man and two women. He did not make two women and one man. He did not make two women to be married. Nor did he make two men to be married. God made one man and one woman to be married. That was and that is God's original design and intention for marriage. And then after making them, God shares, God shares the pattern for success. And again in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus affirms it. This pattern for success is to be followed by every married couple. So listen closely. Write these down so that you have them, so that you know the pattern of success for your marriage or if you are engaged for your coming marriage. First, there needs to be a leaving of father and mother. A leaving of father and mother. You see, when you get married, you are not to take your father and your mother into your marriage. They are not part of the marriage deal. So when you go into the marriage, you are no longer under the supervision, care, and control of your parents because you have left and you are leaving your parents to form your own family. It does not, your parents are still very important. Your mother and father can still provide advice and encouragement. But in a very real way, that is no longer your family. It is an extended family. Your family is now you and your spouse. You are to leave your father and mother. And I have noticed that in marriages, typically early on, there is often an issue regarding leaving father and mother. 
Secondly, God says, and Jesus affirms, that you are to be united. First you leave, then you are to be united. This means that you are to be glued or fused together. Glued or fused together. Other translations say joined or cleave. This is to be an inseparable bond. Now, certainly this means sexual union, but it means much more than sexual union. It means a bond of everything about the two of you. It is an emotional bond. It is a mental bond. It is the bonding of the cultural mores. It means joining together legally and socially in such a way that you are attached in an inseparable bond, attached glued together, united in such a way that if you were to come together, pieces of you would remain with the other. You're to leave, you are to unite, and then thirdly, you are to become one flesh. This means that you become so identified with one another that the union creates an entity all of its own. There is a oneness to your hopes. There is a oneness to your dreams. There is a oneness to your ambitions. There is a oneness to your plans. There is not separation. There is oneness. What is his is hers. What is hers is his. You come together. You are no longer two separate entities or beings. You have come together and you are now one flesh. I have heard people advise, hey, when you get married, why don't you make sure you keep your finances separate? Have separate checking accounts. No, I don't have like five different accounts and one named Thomas and one named Tom. When you are married, you are one and everything comes together. Don't live separate lives. God intends that you leave, that you unite, and you become one flesh. Then to drive this point home, Jesus reiterates God's original intention. Look at verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Long ago, I recognized that when I officiate a wedding ceremony, it is not me uniting this couple in marriage. It is God himself who unites couples in marriage. It is God who unites and brings a man and a woman together to become one flesh in marriage in this permanent, beautiful bond. We live in a world where we sometimes accept the idea that, hey, if it doesn't work out, we are just gonna, we'll just get a divorce. That is not God's ideal or plan for marriage. It is for an inseparable, beautiful bond of oneness. So in that regard, don't ever think that divorce is an option. In fact, don't even ever mention the word divorce when you are talking with your spouse. Because God intended your bond, your union, to be inseparable and to be permanent, a permanent, beautiful relationship. 
Now, I'd like to engage in a little exercise here. So I'd like you to check out these verses on the screen, okay? So you're going to notice these verses on the screen, Genesis 2, verse 23, and verse 24. Verse 24 is the verse that Jesus quotes. Verse 23 comes before verse 24. That's a really significant observation on my part. Verse 23 comes before verse 24. Now look at what verse 23 says. This is the man. Who's the man? What's his name? Adam. This is what Adam says after God presents Eve to Adam. Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now sometimes I think when we read verse 23, we kind of read it. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she was called woman because she was taken out of man. That is not how this is to be read. This is a song. This is a poem. That's why it's indented. It is an exclamation of joy. Adam is here saying, wow, I hit the jackpot. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He is expounding praising the gift that God has given to him. Adam recognizes that Eve is a gift from God himself. And he responds accordingly. So here's the exercise. If you are married and if you are sitting next to your spouse, I want you to grab your spouse's hand. You grab your spouse's hand and I don't care. And here's the deal. If you're, if you're, if you're engaged to be married... There's some people over here that are engaged to be married. If you are engaged to be married, you grab that fiance's hand and you hold that hand and you realize that that hand you are holding is a very, is representative of the very gift of God himself to you. God has given you the gift of that person whose hand you are holding. It's a gift from God. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Do you see what God has done here? He has given you a gift. That hand that you are holding, I know there are some of you right now that are smiling. I can see the huge smiles. And you think this is great. But there are some of you that are holding that hand and you're thinking things haven't been going so easy. And it's been a difficult road. I hear you. I acknowledge, I understand. That's why you're holding the person's hand. Because God has given you that person as a gift. It is a gift she or he is a gift from God. So you did not make a, please listen to me. You did not make a mistake. Because God did not make a mistake by bringing you together. It may be difficult, it may be hard, but it is not a mistake. And it is not something you should look back on with regret. It is something you should look forward to with joy. Because here's the thing. Having a successful marriage does not depend on marrying the right person. It depends upon being the right person. Please write this down. Because in our minds, we tend to think, oh, I didn't marry the right person. That's not what marriage is about. 
Marriage is about you and I being the right person. And that means being like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I promise you, if you double down on loving, serving, and following and obeying Jesus, you will grow in love for your spouse because that will make you grow into being the right person. So if you are struggling in your marriage, today is the day that you commit to loving Jesus more, to obeying him more fully, and following him with more passion because it will translate to joy in the marriage and you will grow in recognizing the gift, the gift that God has given to you. Okay, now we look at the follow-up question. Follow-up question. At this point, I would think Jesus' answer would have scared the Pharisees off, but it doesn't do that. They think they actually have him trapped now because he went back and used scripture, so now they're gonna use scripture to try to trap him. Verse seven, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Here, they're attempting to show that Jesus contradicted scripture. They see that Jesus is quoting scripture, so they're gonna do the same by bringing Moses into the discussion. The background here is that the Pharisees' question comes from Deuteronomy chapter four, chapter 24, excuse me. Deuteronomy 24 is a passage in the Old Testament in which Moses acknowledges the possibility for divorce. And there is a word in Hebrew that is translated into English in Deuteronomy 24 verse one that is translated in the NIV, something indecent. Moses says, if there is something indecent, you may issue a certificate of divorce to your wife. And the intention of Moses is to take care of the female and allow for the potential or possibility of remarriage for the female so she will be taken care of. But it only allows for the possibility of divorce. But do you see what the Pharisees asked? Look what they asked. They state that Moses commanded a man to get divorce. But Jesus doesn't fall for this. Look at his answer, verses eight and nine. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And we need to break down Jesus' answer. We need to look more closely at what he says. Jesus makes five responses to their question. There's five points in response. First, Jesus corrects their distortion. He reminds them that Moses permitted divorce. He did not command divorce in Deuteronomy 24. It allows for divorce for something indecent. There's a big difference in what God commands and in what God allows, which leads us to the second point. Jesus says the second reason Moses permitted divorce was because of what? Your hard hearts. You see, in one phrase, Jesus knocks away all their excuses, knocks over the debate about what something indecent actually means. Jesus is saying here 
He was saying then, and he's saying the same thing today, that behind every divorce, there is a hard heart. Behind every divorce, there is a hard heart. It may be the heart of the wife. It may be the heart of the husband. It may be the heart of both of them. But Jesus' point is that behind every divorce, there is always the issue of the hardness of heart. Then third, Jesus reminds them again of God's original intent when he said, but it was not this way from the beginning. Divorce was never part of God's perfect plan for marriage. Marriage is a divine invention. Divorce is a human invention. Divorce is never in the perfect will of God. Fourth, Jesus gives a stern warning against improper remarriage. Look at verse nine. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now for a moment, I'd like you to set aside that little phrase, except for sexual immorality. We're gonna get to that in a minute. If you leave it out, Jesus here is saying that a man who divorces his wife and then remarries another woman commits adultery. This is pretty strict and straightforward. That's because in God's eyes, if the divorce is improper, so is the remarriage. Because God takes our wedding vows seriously. Remember, you stand or you stood before God and you promised to be faithful until death do you part. This is a vow that you make not only to your spouse, but it is a vow that you make to God himself. So the real issue here is not necessarily the divorce, but the remarriage. Fifth, and finally, Jesus gives us one clear exception to the total ban on divorce and remarriage. It says it's allowed for sexual immorality. The Greek word here that is translated into sexual immorality is the word pornonia. It's a common broad-based word that refers basically to any type of sexual act outside of marriage. Extramarital sex, homosexual acts, and although debated, pornography. Simply put, Sexual immorality provides the grounds for divorce from God's point of view. But please remember, this is a permission, not a command. His desire is always, always healing, just like we looked at earlier. Now, I feel like I need to step away from this text just a moment and mentioned that there are two other biblical grounds for divorce, for remarriage, actually. 
Paul mentions these in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The first biblical grounds, the second biblical grounds for remarriage is the death of a spouse. If a spouse dies, the living spouse is free to remarry. The second one that allows for remarriage is the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, which then allows the spouse to remarry. There's also another issue of concern here that I have thought through, and that is the issue of abuse. Nowhere in the Bible, seemingly nowhere, is there a mention of abuse and what abuse may allow for. But what I would like to say is abuse is certainly a rationale for some form of separation because of the severity of the act. So if a spouse is abused she may remove herself, separate from the marriage for her protection and for the children's protection, or he may remove himself for his protection and for the protection of the children. There have been people that I have advised for this type of separation, and the elders of this church have advised that a separation would be appropriate in light of the abuse. Now, it is obvious that Jesus' words are direct and clear. And they're also heavy. They're heavy words. Because there are many of you who are listening to me who have been through divorce. Some of you have been through divorce and you're single. Some of you have been through divorce and you're remarried. You have experienced that pain of divorce and you never intended when you were married to go through a divorce. What I want to say, and I think sometimes the church doesn't get this right, what I want to say is that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. That divorce is forgivable that Jesus is a healer and that he brings healing through the forgiveness of sin. The sin of divorce, even an unbiblical divorce, the sin of a remarriage for an unbiblical reason, Jesus brings forgiveness and Jesus brings healing. And if you have experienced divorce, you may be sitting here and you may be feeling a sense of guilt or even shame. And my encouragement today is if you have not already, go to Jesus, admit the sin, ask for forgiveness, and then experience his grace. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And you can join the rest of us in this room who have sinned in a different way and had to confess that sin and receive Jesus' forgiveness and experience his grace. Because Jesus is a healer who brings and provides grace. So my friend, if you have gone through divorce, my encouragement for you today is to live in the grace that God has for you.
because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So feel the purpose in the freedom that you have in your current singleness or in your remarriage because that now is what God has for you. And it's his grace. Amen? Amen. Okay, quickly and finally, because I am way over time. The third question, it's an implied question. Jesus laid down a very high standard for marriage and very strict limitations on divorce and remarriage. And I think at this point, it gives the disciples pause. Look at what they said. It's a statement, but within the statement, there's an implied question, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. You kind of get where they're coming from, right? In other words, the disciples are saying, we're not sure, sure we want to get married. There are a lot of expectations and restrictions, so it seems it would be better not to marry at all. And interestingly, Jesus does not correct them. He does not say to them that, hey, you guys misunderstood. Instead, he basically approves what they said and makes the point that not everyone can or should be married. Look at his answer, verses 11 and 12. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Here, I'd like to point out that Jesus does not elevate singleness above marriage, but he does identify three types of singles in his day. The first are eunuchs that were born that way, the second are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. These were men that held positions that served typically royal women and were therefore emasculated for that purpose. The last are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This is not an instruction to self-emasculate. It's kind of supposed to be funny. <laughs> Sorry. But it is a commendation for those who have a special sense of calling and gifting by Jesus to serve him in complete devotion by choosing to remain single. It is an acknowledgement of the importance of being single, that there is actually a blessing that comes from choosing to be single. If you have been gifted and if you have been called to be single, Jesus has a purpose and a plan for you because you can wholly devote yourselves to serving Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. So this is not that singleness is better than marriage or marriage is better than singleness. It is the recognition that there is a call and a gifting to marriage and there is a call and a gifting to singleness. The call and gifting to marriage is a beautiful thing and the call and the gifting to singleness is a beautiful thing. The message here is live into what Jesus has called you to. If he has called you to marriage, live into that marriage. And if he has called you to singleness, live into that singleness, recognizing that it is beautiful and God has a purpose and a plan for you in that singleness. These are Jesus' words on marriage, divorce, and singleness. Clear, 
direct, heavy, and I would like us to end in the way that Matthew began this passage. Matthew began this passage reminding us of the character of Jesus Christ, that he loves you, he cares for you, and he is a healer. So as I close, I want to remind you that Jesus loves you, he cares for you, and there is nothing that he cannot heal. Remember, Jesus in all ways and at all times has the words of life. My friend, if you want to live life and live it to the full with blessing and purpose and passion, listen to Jesus because he has the words of life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices, but Lord, that you offer us words of life, instruction for purpose and passion and meaning. Lord, I pray as I prayed in the beginning that you would give each one of us the grace to humbly accept your words and obediently follow what you have for us, recognizing that you love us, that you care for us, and that you heal us. Jesus, help us to pursue you in all things and in all ways. And it's in your name we pray, amen.